Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to chart into a little bit of new territory today, but we have been spending some time in the first chapter of this wonderful historical letter. And when you study the Bible, one thing that you will discover, as I have over and over and over again, is how relevant it is for today. It is just so meaningful to me to have this letter to read it. Because I'm a spiritual exile in the world. And all Christians are spiritual exiles in the world. And it's difficult. We have persecution at times, not so much in America, but we do have it. There's some cases, there's some instances, there's maybe some treatment that we get because we are Christians, but we're not at home in this world. It's just not our home. There's just too much sin, too much sin when I look in the mirror, too much sin when I look around the world. It's not my home. I'm headed somewhere, the church is headed somewhere, but before and in between us Now and getting there, how shall we live for God's honor in the world? That's what 1 Peter's about. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of faith, encouraging, building, strengthening God-given words to the apostle, to the Christians scattered abroad, as you see in the opening verses, who are spiritual exiles. In the world, First Peter chapter 1 verse 1, to those who are the elect exiles, you can see over in chapter 1 verse 17 at the very end, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It is the running theme of God's word. The people of God are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. But we're not there yet and until we do, this book is for us. And it helps remind us in the opening verses of the greatest theological truths in all of the Bible. Why would he do that? Because it is what we know and understand and learn from God about God and life in Scripture that gives rise to our actions as Christians. It is the indicative that gives rise to the imperative. What God has done in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, on behalf of wretched sinners, that gives rise to the way we live. And not the other way around. And so the first 12 verses are all about the greatness of the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't heard those words and read them, I encourage you to do so. But then when we get to verse 13, we see the word, therefore. And we know that now the author is saying, therefore, in light of all of this glorious, grand, eternal truth about God the Father and His electing work, about God the Holy Spirit and His sanctifying work, about God the the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the first two verses, and the sprinkling with His blood, giving rise to the doxology of verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're to be a people that are anticipating the return of our Lord. In this, he says, do you rejoice? Though now for a little while, see, in between now and that time of the coming of Christ, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, you feel that? Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these precious words. I'm fed. I'm nourished by them. My faith is strengthened by them. And the life of faithfulness is enabled by them. And we pray this morning that you will take these truths and you will illuminate them before our eyes and in our minds and hearts. God, that we may be changed. Lord, I don't even know what to ask for as I ought to. But I pray to you, the one who knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves. And I pray that you will move in such a way among us and walk among us and work among us to save souls. To transform lives and change people into the very likeness of our risen Redeemer. God, help us to live according to these words and to live according to the knowledge contained therein. We ask this by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. If you'll notice with me in verse 17, that's where we left off last week. Calling on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And what's the next word? I didn't hear you. Knowing. So this morning we're going to be thinking about what these people, the recipients of this letter, needed to know. That's the first point. What did they need to know in order to live the Christian life to God's honor, Christ's exaltation, the advancement of the gospel of Christ into the world, and local churches being planted and the kingdom being expanded? What did they need to know? I am amazed, and I'll give you some homework, if you go home and look up the word know in the New Testament, knowing or its equivalent, the, 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 the other words that would, or unknowing, not knowing something, being ignorant of something. It is remarkable to me how much of the Christian life is to be directly lived out in connection to what we know to be true from God. It is a powerful reality in your life. Did you know that what you believe gives rise to what you do? You see, it's easy for a person to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. Or, I trust in Jesus Christ. But it's another thing when trials come, isn't it? And then that, that statement of faith is put to the test. And so, what we really believe is revealed to us through trials. And oftentimes they are, just as the word indicates, very uncomfortable. But in our text this morning, we go back and think about the, the problem that we had when we left off. Because the problem that we have that we actually did resolve in that particular message, but I want to take it back up again. Namely this, that God is holy and you are not. God is holy and you are not. And he says, if you call on God as Father, who is the judge of all the earth, who judges righteously, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We were talking about one of the things that all of this salvation greatness gives rise to is to a life of reverential fear, to hold God in the highest honor possible, to be the supreme value in your heart and life is God, the triune God, and to live out your life in light of that reality. Because He is coming to judge the living and the dead, and He will judge all people. There is even a judgment seat of Christ for the children of God, so that all of our works as Christians will be put to the test of the judgment of God to see what sort they really and truly are. And so what this does is it presents us with the reality that we as sinners cannot approach the God who the writer of the book of Hebrews says is a consuming fire. His holiness in and His distinct purity and just nature require that sin be punished in every one of us, our sinners. And so the, 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 the solution that we looked at last week was the fact that He says in verse 17, if you call on Him as Father. If God the Creator is your heavenly Father, There's something to that reality that gives us peace, that we know we are at peace with the Creator God. 
But verse 18 tells us something else that we must know that helps us to realize that although there is a reverential fear for the greatness of God and the holiness of God, but there is at the same time a rejoicing and a joy and a peace and a pleasure in this same Almighty God because, look at verse 18, knowing that you have been, what? You have been ransomed. You have been redeemed. They needed to know and understand all of the grand and glorious implications of the reality that they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That sinners that were hostile to God and the enemies of God and the just and righteous wrath of God was abiding upon us. That we have a mediator. There, there has been someone outside of us who has acted on our behalf in order to reconcile us to this holy God. So what is this word? What is this idea? What did they need to know? They needed to know about their redemption. They needed to know and be familiar with it and to meditate upon it. To redeem, you know, means to purchase release by paying a ransom. To purchase release by paying a ransom. Or you could say to deliver by the payment of a price. To deliver by the payment of a price. The Greek, in the Greek culture, they would understand that particular Greek word that's used here by the apostle. They would use it in a very specific sense. They would use it for prisoners of war. If one of their soldiers were captured and became a prisoner of war, there could be a, a redeeming price. There could be a ransom price given so that if that price is paid, that individual would be released from their bondage, released from their captivity to the enemy nation. John MacArthur in, in his commentary writes this Quote, I will give you about it. It helps us, I think, tremendously. Quote, it, that is redemption, deals specifically with the cost of salvation and the means by which God received payment. Because all people are helpless slaves to sin and condemned by the law. If they are to be forgiven and reconciled to God, he has to purchase them back from their condition. Only then can he release them from sin's bondage and curse. Close quote. Redemption is what ties our text together. The reality of living a holy life that we saw up there. Beginning in verse 13, sober-mindedness, filled with a hope at the return of Christ, obedient children, all of this being conformed, not being conformed to your former ignorance, those, those patterns of behavior, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all of your conduct, living out your life in reverential fear of God who judges all people righteously because you know that you were redeemed, that you were purchased, that you were ransomed. Through the work of Christ. It ties it all together. The glorious grace that is coming at the return of Christ. The holy God-centered living that He calls for. The reverential fear holding God in highest honor and highest reverence. All of this flows from the great salvation that we've been looking at in the first 12 verses. Or, 
I believe what he's doing here is just reiterating that same concept, the reality of our redemption. So verses 1 to 12, he holds up the greatness of our salvation and all of that beautiful stuff that we looked at, all of that glorious eternal truth that we looked at. And then when he gets over here again, he reiterates that same concept that the reality of our redemption is going to give rise to a life of reverence to God, honor to God. It's going to give rise to a life of a abiding and eternal, imperishable hope. It's going to give rise to a life of holiness. The pursuit of holiness. Because we have been reconciled. We have been redeemed. A.T. Pearson writes, quote, By faith we are taken into Christ. We talked about this in our core seminar this morning. By faith we are taken into Christ, made at once safe from holy wrath against sin, and kept safe from all perils and penalties. He, our divine Redeemer, becomes to us the new sphere of harmony and unity with God and His law His life and His holiness. Knowing this, beloved, will give strength for a spiritual exile living in a world that they are not at home in. Knowing about God's redeeming work is all of our peace. Otherwise, all that we have left when we think about this awesome, holy, almighty God who is just and righteous is fear that we are going to be and are under His wrath. But knowing that we have been redeemed is all of our peace. All of our joy is there. It provides us with assurance that we're free from the wrath of God and have peace. With our Creator. You see, all people are God's by creation, but only some are His by regeneration. By the redeeming, atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. What a joy it is to know, beloved, to know that you are redeemed. Charles Spurgeon. Writes, quote, I thought I could have leaped from earth to heaven at one spring when I first saw my sins drowned in the Redeemer's blood. And the way the Apostle Peter here, the Jewish people, understood this word historically, beloved, was through mainly the writings of Moses. And that great historical event recorded in the book of Exodus where the people of Israel were delivered, redeemed as they were, as they called it, from oppression and slavery to the Egyptians. You can look at it. I'm not going to read it all. You know the story, most of you. But if you didn't know it and wanted to see it more carefully, you could look at Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 to 13. And this was the time when at the end of all of the plagues of the Almighty God. Don't you love to go back and read the Old Testament and see the power of God? You know, our modern day ideas of God are way too small. Go back and read the God of Scripture. He's awesome. Infinite. Almighty. And at the end of His outstretched arm, Egypt was demolished. And his final plague was to send out the death angel 
over the land. And every one of the households, the firstborn would die in every house. The cattle in the field, the slave person, Pharaoh on the throne, everyone would be touched by the judgment of God. Except for the ones who would take the lamb as God instructed them, spotless, pure, unblemished. They would slaughter this lamb and they would take the blood and they would put it on the doorpost and the lintel. And when God's judgment was sweeping across the land, when God's wrath was sweeping across the land, those people that had the blood applied, they were released from that judgment. They, there had been, as it were, a substitutionary sacrifice made and the price was paid and they were covered and they were not touched by the judgment of God. And that's how they would have understood and that's the way the Jewish people would have understood it. The Lamb's life was the required price to spare the life of the firstborn of the people of Israel. And this wonderful work of redemption, delivering the people of God from their oppression and slavery, was only a pointer to the reality of Jesus Christ. It was only a divinely appointed illustration of the fact that there must be a substitutionary sacrifice if we would be at peace with our Creator God. The historical event of the Israelites in Egypt, as glorious as it is and powerful as it is, is only a pointer and a God-given illustration that a price must be paid. It was in that moment that it became central to the idea and the theology of the people of Israel that in order for them as sinners to have a peaceful relationship with the Holy God, there must be a substitutionary sacrifice. And every time they would slay a lamb or a dove or a pigeon or a bull, they were doing that or was supposed to be doing that in faith, looking forward to the time when Christ would come and God would send the lamb, the true lamb. As John the Baptist saw him when he said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so... What does it teach us here in this opening portion? It teaches us that what they needed to know was that they were redeemed. They needed to be able to meditate upon the reality that they have been purchased from the marketplace of sin. That what was lost in Adam and that they had inherited in Adam, which is corruption and death, was now redeemed. The price was paid and now they were at peace with God. Now they were a part of the family of God and the people of God and the children of God. And they would be forever the recipients of the mercy of God and the love of God and the grace of God. It teaches us, beloved, that sin is serious. You know something this morning? Human beings are not just messed up. We're ruined. If you're just a little messed up, But at the core, humanity is essentially good. Then all you would need to do is improve your behavior. 
But over and over and over again in Scripture, we find that at every instance of God's history of redemption, mankind increasingly and continually fails to hold and to meet the standard of God's perfection. And salvation can be found in no other way and no other means than there would be one to act on our behalf who could act in such a way and with such a character as to provide the sufficient means where God's wrath could be poured out and satisfied completely and us go free at the same time. And the only way that could happen was through God the Son who came descending to this earth living a perfect life and going to the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners arising from the grave ascending into heaven and now the good news goes out sinners everywhere come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest come to me if you're thirsty and I will satisfy your thirsty soul come to me if if your soul is hungry and I will satisfy your hungry soul come to me Jesus said believe upon me trust in me For he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Beloved, listen this morning. God will not and cannot allow one half of one rebellious, self-centered, God-rejecting sin to go unpunished. He will not. Not one half of one will he sweep under the cosmic rug. But all will be under his just wrath. And so this is the awesome teaching this morning of the substitutionary sacrifice. What was lost in Adam, Christ has purchased back a people to God, for God, He has paid the price. Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I wondered if I would make it this far. <laughs> I actually have about five things to point out here, which I'll, I'll give you the overview at the end because we'll come back to it next week. Let me say, um, let me cover one more section though. The first thing that we looked at was what did they need to know? They needed to know that they were redeemed. The second thing they needed to know was what they were redeemed from. What were they redeemed from? Let's go back to our text. The first thing that we see in our text in verse 14 is that we were redeemed and they were redeemed from their former sinful passions. And beloved, this is so relevant for the church today because you have people today that are teaching that it doesn't matter, you know, that, that the work of, of God and the faith in Christ makes a person uh, no better than anyone else in their practical everyday living. But that, beloved, is not a biblical reality. Yes, we struggle with sin. Yes, we have remaining corruption. But there is within us the Holy Spirit who has the power to give us victory over our former sinful Passions. Look at it in verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And notice again the connection between their ignorance and here now their new life in Christ. 
Before, you didn't understand. But now that you can know that you're redeemed in the person of Christ, that you have peace with Christ, you need to understand that part of that redeeming work is to deliver us from the power of our former sinful passions. Or the King James says, former sinful lusts. First Peter, if you were to turn over to chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you'll find these words. First Peter 4, 2 and 3. He's talking about how we are alive in Christ. And he says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He helps us to understand what this means. For the time is past suffices, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What is that? What, 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 what is the description of human passions that we've been delivered from, redeemed from? He says, doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Or as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. There they are, deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Notice the connection? Renewed in the spirit of your minds. It's what you know. It's the realities of the work of God in you and for you that give rise to your holy living. He goes on. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the teaching of scripture in the New Testament. These sinful passions, my friends, are a powerful driving force in our lives. I'll say that again. These sinful passions, don't take them lightly. They are a powerful driving force in our lives. And God has purposed to leave us in this world with that remaining corruption that we grapple with that helps us to understand on the one hand that we absolutely cannot live a holy life without the power of the Holy Spirit and that he also works in our life by reminding us of who we are and whose we are and how we got there so that we can be renewed in our minds and put on the new self as he says that's created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Do not take these sinful passions lightly. They are powerful in our lives. Every day we can pick up the newspaper. Every day we we, we read about some other Christian or some other pastor or some other person that once and again has been overtaken by those old, everybody knows about them, everybody grapples with them, not, not enough people want to talk about them so that we can hold each other accountable for them, and the churches are out playing games instead of making disciples, and it is a ruin to the witness of Christ in the world. It doesn't totally ruin it. But it sure doesn't help things because he wants us to understand we've been redeemed from our former sinful passions. Ephesians chapter 2 describes it so very clearly. You know this passage, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 down to verse 3. Listen to this. 
Talking about how we were before we were redeemed. And you were, notice, you were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once, you did, you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen to this. Among whom we all once lived. We once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. At one time, we all walked and lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And our instruction from the Apostle Peter is that we would not be conformed to that ignorant state where we were driven by those fleshly passions, but that we be renewed in our minds, knowing that you've been redeemed has a massive and powerful effect on the way you live. James chapter 1, listen to these words, verses 14 and 15. James 1, 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, when it comes to full growth, Gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But the the apostle Peter says, remember, beloved, you've been redeemed from your former sinful passions. This controlling force does not have to overtake you. Galatians 5.24, quote, And those who belong to Christ Jesus... Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. After the service, if you want to talk about that, I'll miss my sister's birthday party to talk with you about that. It's really what we need to do. You need to go home with your families and you need to say, now that's true and that's the goal and that's the vision. Now how do we do it? How do we help each other do it? Too many churches, and, 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 and we do it too often, you present these things and you teach these things, but, but how, do we, how do we help each other to live those things out? That's just as important as understanding them. Oh, you've been redeemed from it. But tomorrow morning when you get up and that sinful, fleshly passion rears up its ugly head in your heart with an impulse quicker than you can snap your finger, what are you going to use to battle it? How are you going to fight it? That's what you need to talk about when you go home and pray to God about. And one of the things that we're going to take away this morning is that the way that we fight it is that we remember that we've been redeemed. We've been delivered from the power of our former fleshly passions. Well, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to give you the rest of it and we'll come back next week. There's three more things there I won't mention, but the next thing that we're going to see that they needed to know is how they were redeemed. How they were redeemed. And they needed to know the nature of the one who redeemed them. This is all in your text. And finally, we're going to learn why 
they were redeemed. What is the effect of God's redemption of his people? Let's tie it together. The greatness of salvation, verses 1 to 12. You don't know how much I like lingering there. I could preach there the rest of my days. Just think about those truths over and over and over. Chew on them. Over and over and over and over again. (laughs) You know when your redemption started? Eternity passed. Eternity passed. You know when your salvation happened at the cross? You know, the price was paid when Jesus of Nazareth bowed his head in between two other common criminals. And he says, it is finished. And he, he bowed his head. He gave his life. And, 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 and your redemption price was paid in full. And all of the effect of that regeneration, verse 3. Inheritance, verse 4. Oh, the greatness of salvation. Therefore, Let's live in light of these glorious truths. Prepare your minds now. Be sober-minded. Fix your hope fully on the grace that's coming when Jesus comes descending, stepping on the clouds to call his bride into the air. You fix your mind on that every day, you'll have a lot less trouble with sin. You know when we sin, when we take our eyes off of that? Think about it. When you sin, you're not looking at Christ. You're not looking at the cross. You're not pouring out your heart for God to fill you with the Spirit. You're not thinking about the reality that Christ, what if He came back in that instant? So He says, sober-minded, set your your heart, your mind fully on the grace that's coming. How do you do that? What does that look like as obedient children that have been redeemed from our former sinful, controlling passions? Living out and pursuing holiness in life because our Father in heaven is holy. It looks like a life of reverential fear in light of the greatness and holiness of God. And it looks like a person who understands full well and continuing to bathe themselves in the realities of their redemption. Well, that'll transform your life, your marriage. Your parenting, your work, your hobbies, your habits, everything. Knowing that you've been redeemed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for these little babies. We love them. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit that works in our hearts. Thank you, God, for these truths. My heart can barely contain and and cannot contain the greatness of this reality. Eternity will be the unfolding glories of that gracious and merciful work of redemption. Oh God, give us a glimpse. Give us a taste in this room this morning. Help us to live Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, bringing us back on Sunday in light of these glorious realities. And God, we pray you would forgive us where we have failed to do that. And we're ultimately at peace and thankful this morning that because of Jesus Christ, we have been made righteous. We have been made holy. We have been made acceptable in the beloved. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, my Lord, for coming and dying on the cross. Draw and call, convict and work here in these moments. 
Work us, change us for your glory, for our good, for the good of others in this room, for the good of future generations, God, for the good of your kingdom and your church, we pray by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.